Thanks for listening to the Granary Church Podcast. For more information, head to granary.org.au or follow us on social media at The Granary Church. It's always a delicate balance um, coming up to speak after the music. I don't want to jump in over the top of Stu's singing and it's just a bit of a dance to make sure you get that, that time right. I could have just joined in. Now I'm going to preach. <laughs> could have just segued straight in. Anyway, um, I've dressed up a bit for this morning. Um, thank you. Thank you. Anyway, I'm dressed up today because last time when I, um, when I preached, I, um, I, I, let's say I was in a bit of a rush to get here and uh, I preached the whole message with a big stain on my shirt. So I've compensated today. Uh, not as bad as the time when I was wearing a, um, one of those Hawaiian print shirts, which you can only wear if you're young because then it's trendy. If you're old and you wear it, then it's daggy. And um, just a quick style tip there from somebody who doesn't really know much at all about it. But anyway, but I was wearing one of those Hawaiian shirts. And as I was praying before it was time to preach, I looked down and I could see that the hula girls on my shirt weren't wearing any tops. <laughs> so... I just prayed that everyone's eyes would just be on Jesus and <laughs> I never got any complaints about it. So anyway, so look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray and then, then we'll get into it. So God, thank you for um, our time here together this morning, Lord. And I just ask that you would speak to our hearts what you would personally want us to hear this morning so that we can uh, be more like you and follow after you in your name. Amen. So my message is on this thought today and it is this. God did not call you to be comfortable. He called you to follow him. Now, as we focus on embracing God's word, we need to see what God's word says about the sort of lives that we're invited to lead. And the lives that we are invited to lead are not always necessarily comfortable ones. So right from the start, I'll just say that my message here is not about whether you are materially comfortable or not. It is whether your life is geared towards getting comfortable or not. It's about what your heart desires most. This is a message about our hearts. Now, about a month ago, I was on holidays. I managed to get across the border into the magical land of Queensland. And it was beautiful. We stayed in a national park surrounded by these beautiful little beaches. And every morning, we'd get our beach gear and we'd walk down the road and we'd go to the beach and we'd just be there all day, literally. And one morning I was on a stand-up paddleboard just paddling along in these crystal clear waters and this giant sea turtle just went right under my board. Uh, it was just perfect. You know, I sort of half expected like the logo for Queensland tourism to superimpose itself <laughs> right there. It was just one of those perfect little moments. The whole week was literally like that. But there was one morning where we were pushing the children onto, onto waves. They were on boards. We weren't just pushing the kids. They were on boards um, surfing and uh, the wind changed and the temperature probably dropped from 27 degrees in the sun to about 20 degrees. So it just got a little chilly out there. And when it did, I noticed a more significant change in me. I went from relaxed, super fun, we're on holidays, dad, to cranky, let's get out of here right now, dad. One minute I could have stayed there all day and the next it was like the whole holiday was ruined. Now, I don't think this is just to do with me. I think that this taps into something about our humanity that I wanted to explore a little bit 
in terms of our desire for comfort. Now, a few years back, there um, was a comedian called Louis C.K. who was being interviewed on a talk show called Conan. For those of you who watch talk shows, I don't know why you do, but um, talk show Conan is this guy who talks and interviews people. It's American, so they applaud every little thing everyone says. And while we could do with a little bit more of that here in Australia on these talk shows, it does seem a little bit excessive, you know. Um, so the other day I opened my door, <laughs> clap, 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 and on it goes. Anyway, anyway, this comedian was giving this monologue and he was talking about our desire for comfort and to live sort of comfortable lives and to have the best and latest of everything. And um, he gave this monologue, which you can look up, called Everything is Amazing and Nobody is Happy. And in it he talks about some of the amazing advances that have happened over the course of his lifetime, like mobile phones, uh, commercial plane flights, Spotify, MySpace, and that all of this amazing technology is wasted, in his words, on the most spoilt generation ever. So he gives an example of complaining about your phone taking too long to load something. And he says, can you just wait a second? Your phone is literally going up into outer space and back again while you stand there literally not moving a muscle. And he gives a few other examples as well. And look, I think this attitude sums us up pretty well here in the West and that we live in a crazy, amazing, advanced, prosperous time. Life has been so good for so long that we are pretty pampered and preoccupied with living in absolute comfort or aiming to live in absolute comfort. That's the dream. Now, think about where we live right now. And for instance, um, think about what you're having for dinner tonight. I bet it's not the same rice dish that you had for breakfast, lunch and tea for the past month. In fact, you can probably wander down the street or even go to the supermarket and literally pick any meal on the face of the planet and have it for dinner tonight. Whether you want Israeli couscous or a Spanish paella or the latest vegan burger, um, you can make it happen. Um, and think about how often you have complained of not having anything to eat when it's that you have plenty of options to eat. It's just none of it really excites you. So when I consider some of the things that we throw ourselves after here in Australia, whether it's a bit more money, a caravan, a trendy outfit, an overseas holiday, a nice looking um, social media spread, whatever it is, they all seem to have a similar theme to them. And that theme is being comfortable. Now, I'm not saying that any of these things are bad, but when these things become our priority, when they become what we spend most of our time and energy and attention running after, when they get in the way of us doing what God has called us to do, then that's bad. In fact, I would say that here in Australia, the idol, idol of comfort, of being comfortable, is one of the biggest idols in our culture. Our Aussie way of life can very easily take up all of our love and attention. And our pursuit of comfort can be everywhere. Now, I know I might be sounding like a bit of a negative Nancy, and apologies to anyone called Nancy. I don't know why your name has been associated with that adjective. But my apologies if I'm sounding negative. None of these things are necessarily bad. Israeli couscous is not bad. In fact, it's quite delicious. Caravans are not bad. A nice house is not bad. Many of these things aren't bad. It's just that when they become our primary focus that's when they can become bad. Because our primary call in life is not to be comfortable. 
You will find you will not find lasting joy there in those things. You will not find fulfillment there. You will not find purpose and direction there. God never called us to be comfortable. In fact, Jesus warns us in John 16 verse 33 that our lives will be decidedly uncomfortable at times. He says this, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. The life that Jesus is inviting us to live will have trouble in it. That's because God never called us to be comfortable. He called us to follow him. And the two things don't always go together. So as we look at embracing God's word, we have to look at embracing what God's word says about the sort of lives that we are to lead. And the Bible is clear that we were made to follow him. Now, in doing so, you may experience some really sweet, comfortable moments in your life, like my holiday to Queensland or like being in Newcastle. It's pretty terrific here. But this is not our primary purpose. We were made for and we are being called to follow God. What I'd like to do now is we're going to spend a little bit of time camped in a story in the Bible. We're going to look at the story of Esther. Uh, Esther tells the story of the origins of the Jewish festival of Purim, and it's the story of how God used Esther, a Jewish girl in a foreign land, to save his people from a planned genocide. But within this story, there is a key moment that I want us to focus in on, but we need to get the context of the story first so that we can see someone choosing to follow God at the expense and risk of her own comfort. So if you want to find Esther in your Bible, nowadays you don't have to thumb through the pages. You can just type it into your app and there you go. But if you wanted to know, it's about in the middle of the Old Testament and it's one of a couple of books which describe what God was doing through the people of Israel during the exile. Now, the exile was um, the period of time where the nation of Israel had been conquered first by the Assyrians in the north and by the Babylonians in the south. And then what the common strategy was back then in the ancient world was that if you conquered another country, you picked the most important, most successful, most beautiful people from the people, from the, uh, people that you conquered and you took them with you back to um, the centre of your empire. So if Australia was invaded today, everyone in this room would have been taken into exile <laughs> into, the, uh, into the capital of the, uh, of the conquering empire because without a doubt this is the most successful, most important, most beautiful bunch of people in Australia. Now, in the book of uh, Esther, which is sent after the initial exile, the Persian Empire has actually um, superseded these former empires and now rules the whole world. And to understand it, the Persian Empire was the biggest empire that the world had ever seen to that point of history. It was huge. And Esther starts uh, in the middle of this setting. So we're going to read from chapter 1, which says this. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush or Ethiopia. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, which was the summer capital of the Persian Empire. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces, all 127 of them, were present. 
And for a full 180 days, six months, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. And when those days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. Just quickly, seven days is a really long feast. I slip into a food coma on Christmas afternoon. I don't know how these people did it for seven days. The second thing to note here too, this is all happening in a garden within the palace that seats representatives from over 127 provinces. This is one humongous outdoor, indoor living entertaining area. We read on. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. And on the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, which you can imagine after a seven-day bender, he has this brainwave. He commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mahuman, Biztha, Habona, Bigtha, Abiktha, Zetha, and Carcass, for anyone who needs baby names. <laughs> I did practice that. And that last name, Carcass, is just a really striking name for a child. He instructed these guys to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command to Queen Vashti, she wasn't quite as excited by this idea and refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Couple of things to note about the setting here. So one is that there is a very ornate description provided of King Xerxes' palace. Now there are only a couple of other occasions in the Old Testament which go to such detail to describe a place. And they are to describe the tabernacle and Solomon's temple. The reason why such detail is given is that in those instances is to highlight something important about those places and that is they are where God resides with his people. The context here is completely different. So why is this extensive description given? Well, the reason being is this. The writer wants you to want to be there. It is a nice place that he's describing. It is flash, it is fancy, it is beautiful, it is comfortable, it is the most amazing spot in the whole world at that time. And the writer wants you to feel that pull there. Now, after Queen Vashti refuses to come out and do a dance for her husband and his drunk mates, which is surprising, I know, King Xerxes takes her crown from her, banishes her to the harem to never see her again, and then asks for a beauty pageant to pick another queen. Just a little side note from the story of Esther, it has some repulsive attitudes towards women in it. Um, and this shouldn't be taken as a text for anything else, except to highlight that they had some really poor attitudes towards William here in the royal palace in Persia. 
And then in chapter 2, we read how Esther, being young, unmarried and beautiful, gets roped into this process and actually wins the contest and becomes queen. Second bit of context I want to give you to this story. Esther um, is an orphan and she is under the care of her cousin, who is probably older than her, a man called Mordecai. And Mordecai warns her before she goes into the beauty pageant, and even once she becomes queen, to not reveal that she is Jewish. Now, the reason is never given as to why he told her to do this, but we can assume a couple of things. So the first thing we can assume is that if you are from a captive group of people, you are somewhat powerless and at the whim of those you are captive to. So there is a sense of danger with being Jewish here in Persia. You're a captive person. So that's one possible reason. The other is that this place was the capital of the world. And so due to the conquest and exile strategy of the Persians, and also due to it being the biggest, most important place in the world at that time, it was filled with people groups from all around the world. And some of these had existing animosity between them. Now, in chapter 3, we're introduced to the villain of the story. is a man by the name of Haman who is quite powerful in the kingdom. Now, Haman is an Agagite. I had to practice saying that too. That's a really tricky one to say. He was an Agagite. And the Agagites, <laughs> nearly stumbled there, the Agagites um, had a history of animos animosity with the Jewish people that stretched back to two significant occasions. The first was when the children of Israel were coming from the desert under Moses' leadership into the promised land. There was a conflict with the kingdom of Agag. Then later on, when Israel had its first king, who was King Saul, he had a significant battle with the king of Agag. Now, interestingly, interestingly, Mordecai is a direct descendant of the tribe with which King Saul belonged. And Haman came from the same lineage as the kings of Agag. So there's this existing animosity between the people groups within the kingdom of Persia. Now, I'll, the reason I want to point this out is because it's important to uh, keep in mind, and it's important for this reason, that despite the position that Esther has been elevated to, which is safe and comfortable, there remains a danger that comes from being one of the people of God, just like us, even though it mightn't feel like it sometimes. Jesus articulates this sentiment in his, to his disciples, also in the Gospel of John. He says this, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world, and that is why the world hates you. These aren't particularly nice words to hear, are they? Chances are the children aren't learning this is their memory verse out there in kids' church. Chances are, too, that you probably won't find this particular saying of Jesus um, overlaid on a picture of a beach at sunset and hanging up in someone's, someone's office. But it is a helpful one to remember nonetheless. Australia may look like a comfortable place to be, but there is still a battle going on for the hearts and souls of men and women that is not kept at bay by international borders. And there is an enemy out there who hates God and wants to hurt his kids. 
And just like Esther, we can sometimes forget and see ourselves in a comfortable position, but it's all an illusion. It's all quite shallow. Just under the surface of every comfort, there is a real danger. There is an enemy that would love nothing more than to see you separated eternally from your God. Now, in the story of Esther, Haman becomes prime minister and he tricks King Xerxes into signing a decree. King Xerxes doesn't come across as the sharpest tool in the shed in this story anyway, nor does he in the movie 300, but um, that's, that's probably not as accurate as the, uh, as the Bible here. Anyway, he issues this edict that all the Jews will be killed. So then in chapter 4, we get to probably the most famous passage in Esther, and this is the moment I want us to focus on. Having understood the context now, a little bit about what's going on, we're going to look at this conversation that happens between Esther and her cousin Mordecai, who was her guardian, via one of Esther's servants, because she's now queen now. So she's up in the palace. And apparently in ancient Persia, the royals, and unlike royals in Britain, you never saw them or you never heard from them. Uh, they were locked up in a different part of the world, living the high life. So this is the conversation that happens in Esther chapter 4 between Mordecai and Esther. So Hathak, who was the servant, went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman, the villain, had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. So Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law. So Esther is reminding Mordecai of something that he should know here, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. So approaching the king unannounced, you risked death. He did not like being interrupted. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Now, this is interesting to note too because she's the queen, but it's been 30 days since she's seen her husband. That tells you something about their relationship. He wouldn't have been alone. He had plenty of other wives. And years had passed since Esther won the beauty pageant. And there were probably newer, younger wives that he was spending time with. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do, and when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. So here we have Esther, 
living the palace life for a number of years now. It's comfortable beyond her wildest dreams. She's living the dream. She has servants, wealth, and all of the comforts of the world. And certainly to this point, God's call in her life has given her moments of being incredibly comfortable. He brought her to this position. But in chapter 4, the call on her life changes direction. Like the breeze changed direction for me out in the surf, right? God is no longer calling her into a place where she will be comfortable. He is calling her out into a place of danger. Here Esther has a choice to either remain comfortable in her palace bubble or to follow God and in doing so risk her life. You know, today our choice is not too different. There may be moments where following God leads you to moments of comfort and pleasure, but there will be other times where God is calling you into something risky and it may not involve your life. Chances are it probably won't in this part of the world, but it might at some point. But there will be other things that you might have to risk. Perhaps following God means risking your reputation, sacrificing some of your money, getting out of bed early, giving up on your social media, having a difficult conversation with someone, getting over an offence and some hurt. Let me be clear, the decision to follow God is not always a comfortable one. And don't get me wrong, being a Christian doesn't mean we go looking for trouble, okay? Uh, Jesus didn't say blessed are the troublemakers, he said blessed are the peacemakers. But being a Christian and following God means that you can't expect to always be comfortable. We can't expect life to always be easy because God did not call us to be comfortable. He called us to follow him. Now, for those of you saying, hey, wait a minute, my life's not very comfortable. It's actually really hard and I'm suffering at the moment. Well, my question for you is this. This isn't about your circumstances, remember. What is your hope in? In your suffering, do you put your hope in being comfortable again or do you put it in following God? Last year, our family went out to the Warren Bungles. Does anyone know what the Warren Bungles are? Yeah. I thought it was a kid's band until I found out what it was. So the Warren Bungles um, is a volcanic mountain range five hours west from here. Um, it's out past Coonabarabran. Uh, and they are spectacular, really spectacular. And we went there in spring, so the ground was just covered in wildflowers. It was beautiful. Now, as you uh, drive into the uh, National Park, there is a, um, a valley you go into where the visitor's centre is located. And it was a terrific visitor centre, like state-of-the-art, brand new, fantastic. It had this big glass wall that looked out over the valley with this beautiful view. Um, and it had some really cool exhibits in there, some volcanic rocks, some fossils. It had this 3D topographical map of the Warrumbungle Ranges. It was a good visitor centre. Our kids loved that visitor centre. And by the time we'd finished uh, speaking to the lady at the counter to identify some good hikes that we could go on with the children, we actually had a bit of a hard time getting the kids out of the visitor centre. Uh, they wanted to keep climbing on the 3D map and to check out the fossils and to uh, keep looking at the wombat keychains in the gift shop. But after much cajoling, we did actually leave the visitor centre because as cool as the visitor centre was, we weren't there for the visitor centre. Yes, it was new, comfortable and had nice toilets, but we were there to explore the mountains. 
Can you imagine if we drove all of that way just to hang out at the visitor's centre and then turn around and go home? It'd be like Kath Day and Kel Knight on their honeymoon to Tullamarine Airport. <laughs> Made for an easy holiday, comfortable, but it would have been a waste. The call in our lives is similar. You are called to something greater than just being comfortable. You are called on an adventure. God did not place you here to sit in the visitor's centre being comfortable. He called you to follow him. He called you into such a place and such a time as this to follow him. Following God is not always comfortable. But before I close, let me tell you some things that following God is. Following God is always fruitful. Esther risked her life in obedience and as a result, her whole race was saved. Haman was executed. To finish off the story, Haman was executed and the people of Israel were preserved, many of whom returned to the promised land in the coming years. The Bible, God's word, is full of people living amazingly fruitful lives because they chose to follow God rather than to stay put and be comfortable. History is full of examples. This room is full of examples. Obedience isn't always comfortable, but it is always fruitful. It might not be the fruit you want or the fruit you expect, but it is always fruitful. I'll tell you something else about following God. It's not always comfortable, but following God gives your life eternal significance. Esther's one bold decision to step out of her place of comfort left an eternal legacy. Not only were the Jewish people saved, but more than this, because of what Esther did, the race from whom our Saviour, the one who would die for our sins, came. The one who now sits on the throne of heaven, our King Jesus, came directly from the lineage of people that Esther stepped out to save. What's more, Esther's very life points to the work of Jesus. She provides a type, one of royal position who lays down their life in order to mediate for their people. God used Esther's obedience to point to and to fulfill his eternal story. Now the same offer is there for you. God can use your obedience to point to and to fulfill his eternal story. That is what it means to have a life of eternal significance. Now the choice is there. You can live a life of comfort. You can pursue that above all other things if you like. You can prioritise a nice house, a nice car, a well-paying job, trendy clothes, amazing social media account, or you might just prioritise being able to get out of your suffering so that you can finally take it easy. But if you want a life that has fruit and fruit that will last, if you want a life that has eternal significance, if you want a life that embraces his word, if you want a life that is woven into the eternal story of the great and glorious King of heaven and earth who saved his broken people from themselves, then follow God. When you're faced with the option of comfortably staying quiet or of sharing your faith, you can follow God. When you're faced with cutting off a troublesome relationship or extending grace there and reconciling, follow 
God. When you are given an opportunity to be dishonest and make a lot of money or to not make as much and have integrity, then follow God. When you have a choice of a night of Netflix or to get out of your tracksuit pants and go and visit that friend who you know is lonely and hurting, follow God. When you're in pain and your mind looks to the things of this world for comfort, follow God. When the world calls you to focus on being comfortable, turn your ears to the Holy Spirit and follow God. Follow God. Don't just be comfortable. That's your invitation. It's the invitation that the whole of Scripture talks to us about our relationship with Him. And so to finish up today, we're going to do something a little different in that we're going to spend some time talking to each other, which we we talk to each other after church anyway. We don't want to leave in mass silence. That would be weird. But we're going to get together in little groups and talk to each other. And specifically what I think would be good for us to talk about is if there is anything that God has put on your heart that maybe you're pursuing more than following him, little comforts of life that are maybe getting in the way that preoccupy you and take up a lot of your time. So I'm going to pray and then that's what we're going to do. The band's going to provide some music so that we don't have to worry about awkward, deadly silence behind us. And we're going to spend some time doing that. And after we've done that for a little bit, Paul's going to close off the service for us. So let me pray. God, thank you that we can follow you. God, we can be where you are. We can be part of what you're doing. We can have lives that are fruitful, lives that have eternal significance, God. Thank you, God, that we are not doomed to languish in the visitor's centre forever. You call us into a life of amazing adventure, of following after you, where we won't necessarily be comfortable, where times there will be trouble and times there will be pain, but at the end it's a life that has followed after you that is fruitful and eternally significant and that most of all is where you are. So Lord, I ask now as we take time to share with each other and to pray that you would put on our hearts the different things that perhaps we need to hand over, lay down in order that we can follow you more closely. God, thank you for this time together. Thank you for the work you're doing and are about to do, Lord. We trust you, we love you, and we want to follow you. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. Take some time now to consider what really stood out to you in that message. God has been speaking to you, and what is it that he said to you? If you're in the room with someone else, turn and share with them what stood out to you. And I say to them, how can I pray for you? Share with them something that you love about God and something that you're thankful for this week. Or phone someone and ask them those questions. What do you love about God? What are you thankful for this week? And how can I pray for you? Bless you and have a great week.